bonus episode of the Movie Scramble podcast. On today's show, we will be covering the Q&A for the recently released No More Wings, a live-action short film that is under Oscar consideration at the moment. The film regards two lifelong friends, Isaac and Jude, who meet up at their favourite South London fried chicken shop at a very divergent point in their lives. Its tale of friendship works its way between past and present and shows how promise, talent and dreams can struggle to actually become reality in the current day. The Q&A, which follows a short extract from the film, features the director, Abraham Adeyemi, the producer, Abiola Rufia, the cinematographer, Olan Kalandri, and the cast, Evano Jeremiah and Paris Jordan. You can find the film on YouTube. Just search for No More Wings. Enjoy. That you, yeah. I see you shining, fam. Stop. <laughs> there goes the gym work, fam. Never expected you to want to come more, these. Taste for the finer things in life, no? No, it's tradition, man. Plus, them fancy places ain't got nothing on more, these, believe. <laughs> Thank you everyone for joining us. We're really excited that you could be with here, be with us here. I just want to go across the panel. If you can, first of all, starting with Abby, tell me a bit about yourself and your name. Hi everyone. Um, I am Abiola Rufai Awajide. I am a producer and the producer of No More Wings. Um, yeah, that's me. Fantastic. Paris? Hi guys. Uh, my name is Paris Jordan. I'm an actor and I play Jude in No More Wings. Abraham. My name's Abraham. I am the writer-director of No More Wings. Okay. And Olan? Hey, my name is Olan Colladay. I am the cinematographer on um, No More Wings. And last but not least, with your fabulous costume. Donna Jeremiah and I play Isaac in No More Wings. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. So let's start off with Abby. Um, we'd love to know what attracted you to this amazing story. I think for me... The apart from the fact that Abraham is an incredible writer um, and I resonate with his writing in general, I think for this, I think it was the familiarity of it, the friendship between Isaac and Jude, that whole sort of idea of being young and all the ideas and exciting things you think you're going to do with your life um, that you talk to your friends about and then and then being an adult now and sort of really seeing how things have turned out um, and of course the ode to South London where I grew up and Morley's um, so yeah it was a few things. So did you always want to be a producer talking about what you wanted to do when you grow up? Absolutely not it <laughs> <laughs> it occurred to me a lot later in life that I could be a producer I think I always had a love for storytelling, love to, yeah, I always had a love for storytelling, love to write, love to read. And I also really love screen, but I didn't really make that connection until a lot uh, later on in my life. Got to play around with a lot of really amazing creatives that happen to be in my space. And I've sort of slowly worn a few hats and arrived in the last two years or so, actually, at being a producer and knowing that producing is, is where I fit. So, yeah. And you fit well. <laughs> so I'd love the actors to tell us, you know, each of you to tell us what attracted you to the script and the characters. Do you want me to go first? Um, I could do that. Please go. <laughs> yeah, um, if I'm honest, just the fact that Abe wrote it. Um, I worked on one of his plays 
prior to this and he kind of told me about this project and from the get-go I was like yes I want to be involved um, I think it's very special for someone who's so early on in their career like myself to find the writer who's writing firstly kind of represents the world and, and understanding of where I come from but also on an artistic level I just love the way Abe's work resounds with me anything I've read of his I kind of tune in pretty organically to the rhythm of it pretty quickly and so that just gave me the energy to want to be involved in this. Do you think there's parts of you that you brought to the character or would you? Funnily <laughs> enough, I mean, no, I think every every kind of character you play, you have to bring a certain element of yourself to it. But interestingly enough, I see myself as more of the Isaac in the situation and I've brought kind of an amalgamation of my imagination, myself, and one of my very close friends from home into the character of Jude. So it, it's interesting in that way, do you know? Definitely. And also, please share. Yeah, I mean, I, well, yeah, Abe gave me a call and I was brought at the time. And not only hearing a very similar voice on the other line, the story, as I was saying before, which completely connected with me on a level, on a cultural level. And I think even from the lookbook, you were talking about amazing films like Boys in the Hood and these sorts of childhood stories that one highlight the togetherness of the people and also show their charisma, show the beauty of the place, date it, timestamp it. And I think it, yeah, it was something I couldn't refuse doing. I mean, it was, yeah, it was a great offer and I went straight for it. Would you say you related to the story? I mean, did you, are you really connected to the place that you grew up? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in South London and it's it's a tapestry of the place. Do you know what I mean? It's, I guess, the sort of the absent character in this film is the socioeconomic circumstances and everything else that may or may not be, pressures that may or may not be felt by the characters, but it's very much there. For example, the rift between Isaac and his best friend, that he is a lucky person who may be through work or, or his fortune has gotten to a certain place, but is very much still from that place. And I, I, it was quite easy to draw parallels with friends that I've grown up with. And, you know, for luck or again work it's i feel very fortunate to be where i am but quite often you do sometimes feel that some of your childhood friends don't move as far or as fast as you do and that is a particular awkward position to be in have you stayed friends would you say that you know a lot of your friends you have gone and different you know moves different points in your life but you're you know still lifelong friends with them or do you think it's made you move apart from from those still lifelong friends and i think it kind of is the identity of south london in this way that like it remembers you you remember it you kind of know everyone i mean particularly where i live you know you sort of you've got your big markets you've got your your dances that we used to go to you've got the the culture the style and it's, it's very it's familiar i mean even sort of even watching it back you can sort of i'm flitting back to the, the side and smells circa 2000 running around in my night karachis or whatever it was at the time Do you know what i mean it is it's and then in the film the music portrays that and in my mind i kind of see it in this creamy sepia dreamscape and i don't think olang was anything short of that and it's in the top yes yeah it's definitely yeah that's a great move into talking to Olan. <laughs> Thanks for that. I didn't, couldn't have done it better myself. So, uh, Olan, so, I mean, great cinematography, uh, I have oh, to say. Uh, so, what would you say your creative influences are and how do they influence the way that you work and maybe the process? 
Um, I think my approach to the project was always to try as much as possible to keep it, keep some purity in the project. Um, again, I'm familiar with um, Abe's work, similar to what um, Abby said. Um, you know, Abe being someone whose art um, started off in the theatre space, um, it's all about people and it's all about dialogue. And it's less about, you know, cameras and camera angles and camera tricks. So I think my approach to this or my influence to this was how best to ensure that there was honesty and some um, some some purity, like I said, to how we approached. It, it shouldn't be um, crowded in, like I said, camera tricks or let's put the camera in this um, interesting angle. I think it was all about how can we just make the camera some kind of fly on the wall, kind of to see what was being, I guess, what was taking place in the place. So for me, it was about how how can we make sure the camera remains objective and not really picking a side between the two characters. Because, you know, it's, it's all about this journey that these two characters had undergone in their previous years. And now there was some kind of reconciliation where they gone through different paths but there was this still interesting bond between them which was South London it was uh, Morley's so uh, so I think for me my approach was how best to keep it pure but um, like every DP would say how to still make it cinematic and filmic and I think that was one of the you know biggest challenges we had and you know to the to the success of the project I'm really happy with how it came out you know though it was pure it was about the performances but there was still something that felt I guess cinematic for like a, a better word that did transport the viewer into this world of the Morley's shop which was yeah felt good to kind of see the world through that lens but then again it felt very familiar for people you know who grew up in Satlon it did look like a Morley's shop but a heightened version of the Morley's shop. Talking about the story Abraham you wrote and directed it where did you get the idea from? I it's an idea that's been in my mind for a few years now and I hadn't written the actual script or anything like that but I'd just been thinking of two friends who I grew up with and it started with thinking about those two people and it extended into just thinking in general about people who I'd grown up with and how we'd all turned out despite having relatively similar opportunities in life having a similar background you know a lot of us came from single parent homes and I just wondered you know why do people turn out differently when they have all the same options and from there my brain started to wonder okay well if I was to get these two people who I grew up with and they were they met today and they were what would those conversations be like and most importantly where would that conversation take place what is the place that would bring those two people together and there was nowhere that it could have been other than, you know, firstly a chicken shop, but taking into consideration that I've grown up in South London, it had to be Morley's, which is, for those who don't know, the most famous chicken shop in South London there is. And so, for me, yeah, I think of myself, I think of my friends, you know, some have corporate jobs, some are on the other, set, um, the other end of the, you know, career ladder and yet they all still love going to chicken shops it doesn't change and so that was where the idea came about just imagining what it might be like for those people to meet today what would they talk about what would they think um and how would they see each other as well as how they would see themselves in the presence of the other person did you base it on anyone you know <laughs> yeah to an extent i mean you know both those characters are very familiar and that one is very loosely based on my best friend and the other's very loosely based on another friend that we grew up with but there's so much that isn't true about both my friends that that are in those characters and that mm. yeah the most frustrating thing i ever find is trying to write something that's true as opposed to having the freedom to 
tell the story I want to tell. So even when I'm drawing from truth and reality, the very first thing I start to think of is, right, what can I do to put in these characters to make them not the people who I'm writing about? So a great example is the character who Jude is um, inspired, the person who Jude is inspired by doesn't have a kid. Right? That's a great example. Myra is a drug dealer, but there were certain elements where they do differ and, and where they are the same. So yeah, the, the people I knew was a starting point, but ultimately for me to be able to best serve the story, I have to you know, stray away from that and reach out into my imagination. And is that something that means a lot to you, telling stories from home, a place you have a real connection with? It does, absolutely. And once upon a time, I didn't think it was important to me. I've, I've just always enjoyed telling stories, period. But as I've kind of grown as a human, as well as as a writer, it's become increasingly more important to me. I guess it's because I see that that's where I flourish best as a writer. And that's not to say that, you know, one day I won't write something which is nothing to do with the place that I'm from. But at the same time, I think when I am writing stories that aren't about where I'm from, I still somehow feed my upbringing and my experience and, and the world that I've grown up in within those stories, which is always important to me, whether it be the geographical sense or in the actual characters and who they are. So at the actors, I mean, you really did choose two fantastic actors for the leads. Why these two? What drew you to them? And how did you know they were right for the parts? Um, I'll start with Paris, because Paris was the first person who I casted without anything being happening with the script. So I was writing the first draft of the script, and as I was writing it, I was like, do you know what, Paris has to play this character. As he mentioned earlier, he was in a play of mine in the past and, and I've been wanting to work with him again, but I've, yeah, the way I work as a writer and producer and in all my capacities is that, yeah, yes, you know, all these fantastic actors, but you always have to cast the right person for the role because I need to honour them as well as honour the writing. And so in that moment when I knew it had to be Paris, I just put it in my brain, I was like, right, this is who's going to do it. And thankfully, X amount of months down the line when everything was ticking, Paris was available. He was he was at that time actually in a play at Edinburgh, but he so very generously made the time to take time away from the rehearsals to come and shoot the film for us across two nights. And so that was the case with Paris. And then with Ivana as well as the other two actors, I was sent... Um, we have a, we had a casting director called Heather Baston and she presented the actors to me and the first person I needed to cast before anyone else was the other adult who Paris would be playing alongside and and I gave a very loose spec he, the character had to be black I got given a bunch of black actors I was like, you know what, I think I would prefer someone who was a dark-skinned black man because that was important to me to show the different shades of black on, on screen and so often when we only see one version of that. And so that was important to me as well as seeing the two the people. And when Ivana was presented to me, I was like, well, this was great. This is an actor I she like. And what made it even more amazing, you know, firstly being presented with someone of Ivana's talents. But in addition, it was when Ivana and I spoke before he'd agreed to do it. He phoned me up and we just had this amazing conversation. And, and you know, I can't think of it of a better way to wear this other than I remember thinking to myself, oh, oh right, like he's gang, he's got like he's one of like I could tell he was from where I was from and he's from <laughs> the same kind of you know, but despite us never having met, I just knew that we could connect. And so it was a total joy when he said yes. It was even more I remember it was a morning and I don't know everybody remembers this, but I think he'd messaged me at like maybe five or six AM and I'd waken up to these messages because at this time I kept waking up at 6am and I'd waken up to these messages where he's asking me all these questions about the characters in the script and 
if I wasn't already sure he was the right person in that moment, I knew it. I was like, this is how much you care about this project and what you're prepared to bring. So, you know, it was a total joy in the case of Ivano and Paris to have them on. Like, yeah, I'm in no doubts about Paris's talent having worked with them before. And, to, you know, what I didn't know until the first day of rehearsals was that they actually knew each other. And that was a joy. And, and that, of course, I imagine helped the chemistry flow even quicker. And once we'd cast those two, we then found the young boys. I was presented again with um, what they called tapes, um, audition tapes of actors. And for me, the most important thing, first and foremost, was performance. I needed people who could deliver. And we just got so incredibly blessed in that the actors who I thought were the best also looked like our adults. And I was like, because I was so they prepared. They really do, though, don't they? I'm sure that all of you will think that. It's quite unbelievable how much they look alike. And I was so prepared to have the cast people who don't look like, because I would rather have the good performance than have someone who looks great, but you can just tell that they're not performing well. And and they were just brilliant. And, yeah, I remember the first day when we had all four of them in rehearsals, and it was so beautiful how... Yeah, despite the fact that they're not really in any scenes together in the film by that one significant moment, how they were feeding off of each other and, and having them all in that room definitely helped in them understanding who they were. Yeah, it was it was brilliant. And yeah, that was the casting process. So Ivana and Paris, um, you can tell us a bit what it was like working with Abraham. Uh, you can spill all your secrets. <laughs> and, and also, what was the rehearsal process like? I mean, first of all, the rare pleasure of having a rehearsal process, which kind of says a lot about the director and the measuring man, that is attention to details next to none. And I think as, as watching it, you probably learn that in a couple of seconds. Already the atmosphere in that room, in the rehearsal room that we, when we were pre preparing for the film was, was amazing. And I think it, it made the shoot so much easier. Sorry, I'm being interrupted, sorry. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, it, sorry, I'm going to have to repeat the second part of your okay, question. And, uh, so what was it like working with Abraham and what was the rehearsal process like? So what was it like working with the director? Abraham's also an actor and a talented all-rounder. So again, that sensitivity and no flab feedback made the work so much easier. It, you know, it, it, it's someone who knows what they're saying, what they intend to do and gives you the space to experiment. And hopefully that related on screen. Thank you, Paris. I mean, I think Ivano stole my answer, but um, <laughs> honestly, as I said, having worked with him before, I kind of knew what to expect and the clarity in, in his direction and, and shape and image for the, for the project. I think just walking into a room, having known, like I've got confidence in the script, I walk into a room with some great actors, obviously knowing Ivano, what he does. Um, it was just easy. That's, like, that's the way I explain it, easy. Like, we went in, it was swift, organic, and it just kind of flew. And the next day we were shooting, so it was brilliant. Amazing. And Abby, let's uh, talk a bit a bit more about you. So how did you actually get into filmmaking? As it wasn't, as you mentioned earlier, it wasn't your original career choice. What drew you to filmmaking? I think, like I touched on earlier, it's just storytelling, just the want to tell stories, to watch to listen to stories I think I I met Abe when did I meet you Abe about 10 years ago <laughs> we both went to Brunel University with a lot of other really amazing creative talents um, and while I was there I got to sort of just have fun and create with a lot of people um, and then when I left and we were sort of reintroduced through a mutual friend um, Abe and I sort of 
elaborated on so much from there. We did a lot of theatre, a lot of just talking about story and developing scripts, um, some of which we would probably burn now. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, just, just creating. I think I wore quite a few hats, did some promos, still do promos, music videos and that sort of thing. Production managed a bit, AD'd a lot and loved it and sort of drew me to where I am now, sort of knowing that producing is, is where I fit um, and where I work best. That's how I want to tell stories going forward. So, yeah. Fantastic. So, Olan, can you talk a bit about the collaboration with Abraham and how you work to build the aesthetic for the film? Yeah, it was um, it was a very um, a very refreshing refreshing collaboration. Again, Abe was I was going to say he's a first time filmmaker. He's not first time. He's not a first time anymore. He was a first time <laughs> filmmaker at that time. And you know, when you collaborate with a first time filmmaker, there is that tendency as a more experienced DP to want to mother the be the mother and almost be a mother to the baby, the baby being the, the first time director. But I think for me, one thing I fought hard to do was to honor Abe's intentions and also give him the latitude to experiment um, creatively with what he, what he wanted to do with the script. Um, I remember the first time he approached me, he did mention he wanted, he wanted the, the shorts to be this one take um, steady cam shot. And creatively, I didn't think it was right. Um, logistically, it would have been a nightmare. All, all things said no. I believe, I mean, I did hear him out. I'm like, well, I, well, yeah, yeah, we can try and make it work because I was just so keen to ensure that the magic that first-time filmmakers bring to the screen, you don't kill that. So I think that that was one thing I ensured I fought for. You know, in the end, you know, Ivy was kind enough to kill that dream, which I really appreciate. <laughs> nice to allow um, to trip the dream. <laughs> you know what? I'm so yeah. grateful that everyone killed that dream because it within the first five minutes of the shoot, I just remember thinking to myself, my goodness, I'm so glad that I listened to them. This is not going to be as straightforward as I thought it would be. And imagine mm. we had that additional, you know, piece to deal with. Mm. I'll do it in another film one day, but that definitely yeah. do continue. Yeah, so it was, it, was just, um, it was just important to ensure that whatever, like, interesting things he wanted to do, he had the privilege to do it again. It was his first short, so if you want to experiment, please do experiment. But one thing that was really refreshing for me was the fact that he's... Uh, he's an actor's director. He's not one of those directors who's looking over your shoulder and, you know, going, oh, let's go a bit tighter or let's go a bit wider. Oh, what lens is that? For, he, for him, it, it was all about the performance. And I think that carried through the actual project. I think when you watch a film, I think for me, the joy is the fact that the one goes, oh, that's a fantastic looking film. It was a, that's a compelling, you know, story. People, people got drew into the world of this character. And I think that out of the fact that we both just agreed it was about the, you know, the actors, it was about the story, the journey of these um, two characters. Let's just let the audience be a part of this scene. And that's, um, I, I think it was just important for us to ensure, like I said previously, there was that um, purity and that honesty to the work and not cloud it in camera trick and tricks. Because I remember reading the script and it was, what, 15 plus pages in one space with two people sat across um, a table. I'm like, man, this, this is going to be boring. <laughs> but it's a testament to how good the dialogue is and how good the actors were. That it's so riveting. I mean, I watched the film over and over again, and yeah, it, it doesn't feel 
like a very long film, given the fact, I mean, it is a long piece, but yeah, the dialogue is just so honest. And I think for me, it was all about how best we can ensure that we don't cloud the story in, you know, technology and kit. Let's just let the camera, um, let's just let the audience, uh, let's just let the actors do the work. And a testament to Olan off of the back of that, actually, in terms of when we were deciding, when Abe was deciding what DP he was going to go with, I had worked with Olan previously and knew quite a few people that had worked with him. And something that always comes up, especially where he works with new filmmakers, is that he, everything he just said, is that he... He really knows how to guide their vision without overstepping and sort of pushing the vision in the direction that he necessarily wants it to go to. Like, yeah, I think he really had that has that right balance. And it was just really amazing to then see him work with Abe and him to do what he does best and allow Abe to to tell the story he wanted to tell. So yeah. Sure, just to add to that as well, um, and I mentioned this to Olan recently, I don't know if they've worked together now, but at the time, my, our executive producer, Fiona Lamptey, had never worked with Olan. And despite that, she had, she, when she asked me, who's your DP going to be? She was like, there's this guy called Olan. I think that should be your DP. And I was stunned by her reasoning, which was exactly what Abby said about how he will, how she just could sense that he would work well the first timer and, and not try and um, overshadow their vision. And she, I don't know how, but she could just see that without having worked with him before. She just understood that. So it's a huge credit to you that so many people speak of you in such a way. And yeah, I, I was, it was an honor to have you as part of it. You know, and yeah, we'll make more films. <laughs> so I just want to ask one last question to Abraham as we've got the questions coming in thick and fast. And please, everybody who's listening, feel free to add to them. But uh, I, I, uh, tell us about the film for those who may not have seen it. Yeah, of course. No More Wings is about two lifelong friends who are catching up in their childhood favourite chicken shop in South London. And it touches on brotherhood, gentrification, and I think a really important thing that runs through it is talking about the meaning of home. And it essentially explores how two people who had all the same options in life, like I mentioned earlier, they've had the same upbringing, same kind of household, same kind of education and neighbourhood, but yet their lives turn out differently and wanting to understand the why of why that possibly happen amazing amazing like going into the questions okay this is from stacy can you talk about the significance of jude's statement about being an example to the kids in the hood by staying home and how that was from isaac's desire to brand out just um, really interesting about that the play that i did with paris called the cage I can't remember what the line is, but there's a line that's almost identical in that same play where there's a character who says the same thing. And for me, that line is so important in that, you know, it, that's the, you know, it almost defines the question of the whole film for me, which is, uh, do you leave home or do you stay? What's the importance of that? Like, you know, is it selfish? Is it selfless? It's a question which... Yeah, I think I fight with myself in it all the time, knowing that how can you expect somewhere to get better if those who are meant to care about it and who it matters so much to are no longer there, whether it be to reap the benefits of it getting better, but also to play a part in it getting better as well. And and I'm not just talking physically, I'm talking even ensuring that people from the same environment know that it's possible to aspire to greater than these kind of 
the neighbors we're talking about, which is, you know, run down estates with social housing, very working class backgrounds. You know, so many people escape those places in terms of they grow in the way that they they are I don't want to say better than, but they they I guess it's social mobility and elevating. But what does that mean if you're not essentially sending the ladder back down and and it's difficult to yeah, I don't have the answer as to which is the right decision. Like it's something I still battle with all the time because as someone who loves travelling and exploring and visiting, I, I can't imagine staying in one place forever. But that's yeah, that's how I think of that. And in terms of it differing from Isaac and his look at branching out, again, it's it's what I just said. It's someone who has grown up some of their whole life and knows that there's more to the world, there's more to life. And yeah, hopefully it's about someone, you know, for an individual, I guess it's about finding that middle ground and never forgetting where you're from and how it contributed to who you were and hopefully identifying that you have a responsibility for that place and the people from those places in one way or another. That's really interesting. Um, I'd love this question to go out to Abraham, Paris and Ivana, and it's from Yasmin. She says, I liked how in the film Isaac didn't appear to be better than Jude and vice versa. It really highlights free will and the numerous paths our lives can, can take. Do you believe one's environment and race can limit one's life's potential? You do want to go first? Thank you for observing that the film shows that neither of them are better than the other because I think that was so important to me that... I think of my friendship groups again, and I think of all the people I've grown up with, and we have we have a range from the friend who's a multimillionaire to the friend who was me, who was juggling three different jobs the other day. And when we're all in the room together, catching up, not, yeah, we're all the same. We're all equal. No one looks down on anyone or frowns on them in any kind of sort of way. And so it was so important to me to depict them as people who saw each other as equals, even if not necessarily they saw. Yeah, I think for the Jude character. And I say this thinking of the friend that is inspired by that. Unfortunately, they have things that they think within themselves. And you can't control that if they think that you're looking at them in a certain way. All you can do is look and treat them in the way that that you want to look at them. And to answer the second part of the question, which I believe was about the environment you've grown up in and and if race can limit your potential, right? Mm -hmm. Um, For me, I think... You're, it's impossible to say that it doesn't affect you, whether it's your environment, whether it's your race. You know, the world, unfortunately, will play its biggest part in covering your how you how you're seen and how you're treated. And yeah, I think like the characters, I was quite fortunate in the kind of school that I went to. I went to a very good school, but I still lived on an estate and all of those things. And you know, the beauty of that school was that we were all treated as equal, and you were led to believe that you could truly achieve anything you wanted. I think that was something that was instilled in my school. It was something that was instilled in my household. Like I was truly led to believe that. And I always tell people this anecdote about how it wasn't until my early 20s where yeah, it crossed my mind one day that someone could pick up a script of mine, see my name, which obviously is an African surname, and make a whole assumption about that script to the point where they might even put it down and decide not to read it. And I'm not in control of those things, but it did make me think, wow, that really sucks. And hopefully, you know, as the years go on with people like myself, like Abby, with everyone in this call, you know, that's going to change mostly because the industry is getting more diverse. And so the, the kind of people who are picking up those scripts are different, but equally the people who are 
in the industry, like myself, shows people that there's all types of people there. But I would be lying if I said that I don't think it plays a part. But I still, yeah, it's not as black and white as saying that it's down to the individual because, yeah, it, 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 yeah, everyone's born with different cards in their hands. And I think it's very irresponsible to suggest that, oh, but, you know, anyone can be anything. Because, yes, anyone can be anything, but my goodness, it's harder with your climbing from the bottom of the mountain compared to if you're you know, one mile away from the top. Fantastic answer. It's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, and, sorry. Please go ahead. I mean, to also, to, I mean, to piggyback on that as well, I mean, that, like, black and white being the operative word, like, in a place like South London where it's, it is such a colourful tapestry that the divides aren't particularly about race. You know, some of your best friends, it's, it's, it's basically class, it's, it's the mood, it's the culture, and everyone is kind of accepted in that way. There's beauty in the struggle in this place that I'm trying to paint for you. And alchemy isn't, there's no shortage of it. You know, there's, we've grown up people with, who are now footballers, there are fashion models, there are, you know, great intellectuals and people who are teachers now and doctors and all sorts, but all very much under that same weather. And I think that's partly the beauty of this place that, that, a brings to the screen so fantastically and being equals is i think the the agreement and anyone that kind of moves or is, is too elaborate in that way then kind of you quite often learns that lesson in such a place yeah and i think no more wings does sort of play with that idea and and uh, brings up these arguments fantastically I love how you glow when you talk about South London and then Abe has a big... Such a beautiful answer. <laughs> it just, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful, it, it's just beautiful to see, it really is. Paris, the original question. I mean, I, I personally haven't grown up in North London. Um, I would say similarly to what Ivano said that um, I grew up in kind of the working class world, but it was very multicultural from our perspective. And the thing that personally I think kind of sends people I think on different directions is kind of what you're exposed to having seen my mum and watched my mum elevate herself and tell me from a very young age where we are and, and where we are in the world isn't the end and there is more to the world and there's more things for you to be able to see and explore and do and and be that I feel like I've always kind of had a steady focal point to be able to keep trying to push forward and be more than where I come from or what who my family are and things like that you know as the guy said no more wings just in the writing and, and the chemistry of the characters brings that so perfectly together like I was saying at the beginning these two characters I see myself as more of the Isaac but actually instantly I recognize the two characters in the story in me and my friends it sounds like you all really connect to the story and then it really means a lot to you, you know, because you all see someone or something of yourselves in it. And that's partly why it makes it so magical, because it's so real and honest. Um, so Stacey uh, said, to piggyback on Yasmin's question, I find it interesting that Judith, a child, was the one who seems to be more fancy free, wanting a career in music and being naturally bright and smart, whereas Isaac was much more pragmatic. Not everyone is blessed with the natural gifts. Some of us need to get a degree. Tell us about the nature-nurture element of that, making your own destiny versus maintaining the status quo. Uh, Abraham? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, thank you for the question, Stacey. <sighs> nature-nurture. When I think of those two characters, I think, I think they're more similar than they realise as adults. Uh, and, and that's shown in their childhood, of course, where they seem pretty much like the same person. They're the same 
excitable young boys interested in the same things and when people ask me why did one person turn out differently to the other i think in the case of those two characters it's that isaac was focused and jude was always yeah he wanted to do not only did he want to do so many things but also you know you had that moment as a young child when he's like oh no i'm done with football like i'm yeah i'm gonna go on to do this instead and and it was kind of he had a, the character has an insatiable um personality in that he he oh yeah it's a lack of patience and as someone who has been this is now it's coming up to 10 years since i decided to drop out of university and start writing if someone had told me it would take 10 years I would have probably done a Jude and been like, yeah, I'm done with this. I'm not doing it anymore. And thankfully, I had no idea it would take that long. And I, and I got to a point where it was the point of my return. I've got nothing else I'm going to do. I've let everything go because this is all I want to do. So I'm just going to keep my focus in the way that Isaac did. And so I do feel like it's that I, I, that's why I hesitate to say that it was the environment that caused that, considering they had such an identical upbringing as opposed to this is who they were. These, this was their innate character. And I think of me and my younger siblings who have all had a pretty similar upbringing. Yeah, they are so different to me. I, yeah, our personalities are, are, yeah, there's certain similarities, but there's other elements. Like when I think of kind of drive, for example, their drive, isn't similar to mine, but also I'm aware they're young. Neither of them are even 18 yet. So they're always adopting, um, adapting rather and changing. And there'll be a different person in six months and in a year and five years and 10 years. Didn't we all? Right. <laughs> Over the years. Uh, so uh, w- one last question. If you have any others, please do pop them in the box. Uh, this is from B from the Caramel Film Club, who has already interviewed both Abe and Abiola. <laughs> she says, your comments here sound like the set was a dream. And what are your superpowers? Or perhaps another members of the team? Mm, uh, what's your superpower? <laughs> Off the top, I think my superpower is bringing people who are wiser and more amazing than me together to create something. <laughs> I'll say that's my superpower. I think it's finding finding amazing people and then hopefully bringing them together to tell stories. Good answer. <laughs> I think for me, I don't know if it's a superpower as much as it's maybe irritating, but I always, yeah, if I want to do something, that's it. So I'll call Abby and I'll be like, right, I've got this idea. I want to do this. I want to do this. And that's it. I don't know how to do it. That's Abby's problem. I'm just, yeah, I'm the one who's decided that this, I've decided it can be done. Even though I don't know how it can be done. It can be done. Abby, I want to do this. Let's make it happen. And yeah, I think it works really well with me and Abby in that Abby's, you know, she will rise to the challenge, but she's also pragmatic and she'll bring me down the, a bit and so I'm like, okay well this can't work I mean why can't it work and I'll really unpack and try to under, yeah I mean, the chicken shop is a great example where very early on she said to me um so what's your backup plan if we can't use Morley's and I said why are you asking me about the backup plans we're shooting in Morley's there isn't a second option if it's not in Morley's we're not making the film <laughs> but other conversations we have the phone calls yeah <laughs> so, but yeah I think for me it's just yeah always believing that something can be done like I, I i always think that there's a whether the world there's a way you know christian i think you're gonna a question from christian which i think you'll love 
The ironic thing about No More Wings is that the film has taken flight and resonated with so many people, especially from across the pond. Why do you think the film has moved people all over the world, many of whom have never even been to South London? Well, I do love that question. Thank you, Christian. Um, I think it's because, I would like to think it's because of what I always strive to do with my stories, which is make them universal. You know, yes, No More Wings is so entirely specific in that it's, the chicken shop is raw and it's set in South London and all of that. But when you strip all of that away, it's just about two friends who have grown up together and grown apart. And I think that's something we can all relate to. I've lost count of how many people have said to me, I have a friend just like Jude who, yeah, you, you worry about them and you think, why have you not turned out great? Because you had all the ability in the world to turn out great. And so I think that's the reason why it resonates with so many people. Everyone has that friend who they just wish they had, turned out better but something i always say is so important to me about the film is you don't know how that person feels about how they turned out they might be happy with how they turned out they might be happy with the journey and the path they're on and as much as everyone likes to assume that isaac's life is all great and all perfect there's little subtleties where you can see that maybe it isn't whether it be that he mentioned yeah, but oh, we didn't all have natural talent. Some of us had to get a degree or whether it's the fact that he's having to check his emails at eight o'clock in the evening. So, yeah, it's always green on the other side, but we're all carrying our crosses and dealing with our internal things that isn't necessarily always apparent to the outside world or the people about us that are slight imperfect of our whatever they may be great now Yasmin is asking did Isaac and Jude's life goals mature as they aged or did they change their dreams to better fit with their life uh, and do you feel that having big dreams as a child sets you up for failure or disappointment as adults that's so many questions um, I'm gonna okay, the last one first do you feel that having big dreams as a child sets us up as failure and disappointment as adults for me absolutely not i always been a big dreamer from childhood and yeah my i i always tell people that everything i've always thought i wanted to do in life i've never for a moment thought i couldn't do it and that's not to say i achieved it all i wanted to be an nba player and i never made it to the nba but i always felt like i could do it and so i decided one day i didn't want to do it anymore i could do it and i think actually that having big dreams at least for me has set me up in a great way in terms of I just always aspire to, to to be the best. And it doesn't mean I always am the best, but I think things have turned out all right because there's such um, a determination and I think probably a self-belief as well. But again, I, that, that self-belief, yeah, sometimes I, I think it came from me, but then I think of some of the things that I remember. My you know, I always say to people that if there's one thing I always recall my mother saying to me is that, she always said to me, you're going to do great things. Like she was always convinced. And yeah, I think about this. I'm like, this is mental. Like, why did you think this? And I remember when everything started happening with Memo Wings, mom called me. She was like, well, you do remember what I said. You were going to do great things. So it doesn't come as a surprise to her. And so I, I would like to believe that, yeah, essentially I, I, I don't see how ambition sets people up for failure. I, I think as you grow up, you become wiser and you become more discerning of the world and measure your ambition. I wouldn't necessarily say accordingly in that it shrinks, but you weigh it up. So if again, if we bring back basketball, at one point I realized, okay, well, 
I do believe I can do this thing, but realistically, the odds aren't in my favour because I live in the UK and I'm six foot two as opposed to six foot eight or something like that. But you know, okay, what's the next great thing that I want to do? And at one point, I was a lawyer. At one point, I was a banker. And then finally, ten years ago, I realised no, I wanted to tell stories. And yeah, here we are. Um, that was one part of the question. I can't remember the other two. Please forgive me. You kind of answered it in essence, but you know, I don't want to shy away from the success of the film. I mean, right off the bat, the film won Tribeca, and actually, that's an American festival. Did you re- did you realise the film would you know, as Christian mentioned, that it would really resonate so well with people from all around the world when you were making it? Did you feel that would happen? Absolutely not. It, yeah, I what I will truthfully say is that I always hope and believe that it would reach the heights that it's reached. Like when we were submitted to festivals, we only submitted to festivals which would without enough qualifying for either BAFTA or the Academy consideration. But nothing in my wildest dreams made me think that the very first festival we submitted to which was Tribeca, that we'd get selected for it. And not only did we get selected for it, we then won Best Short at it. And yeah, to go even further, not only did it win, it was, I think there were five judges and all of them picked it as the number one film. And I didn't imagine that would happen. Um, but I think in a strange way, I've always had a great response to my writing from Americans. So part of me wonders, why was I surprised? Maybe I shouldn't have been. But at the time I was, I couldn't believe it. Not forgetting the first festival also uh, qualified the film to be considered for an Oscar. So that's a pretty big <laughs> deal considering you're going your first, that's something, uh, you know, filmmakers dream of and go to you know, hundreds of festivals to get. So it just, that just shows the testament of your work. Okay, we've got time for one last question from uh, Leanne Lindsay. Please talk about the background music of the film. Who did you work with? Uh, that was one of my favourite things. So I always say to people that I've, I lack talent in the two things I love the most, which are music and football. So I'm not good at football and I don't really have any musical talent. Um, However, it was amazing to get to flex my musical, I guess, love and knowledge in choosing the soundtrack for the film. So the first song was a song by a duo called Blase and Loxo called Top Striker. And it was actually their first song. But what was so important to me about that song is it's a rap song but they're rapping about football and that foreshadows the story we're obviously going to discover about Jude, that he once had dreams of becoming a footballer when he had dreams of becoming a rapper. With the second song that's featured in the film, which was uh, P2J's Hands in the Air, that was that part of the film was set in 2006 and so it was important to me to pick a song from 2006 and growing up in South London, anyone who grew up there knows that, that song. It was an absolute anthem and so... I very fortunately managed to get the rights to that song. Um, I grew up with his manager, and so I reached out to him. I was like, oh, I want to get this song. I think he actually didn't reply to to me um, just because he's always really busy. But I've got a friend who's managed by the same person. And so that producer manages and makes songs for my friends. So I was like, oh, can um, can you ask Pro? if we can have it it's like yep you can have the song it's fine you're happy he's happy for you to use it and just to take back a step with Blase and Loxo um, I'm friends with those artists as well and I'm friends with their managers and so they were equally so happy for us to have the song and with the final song which honestly I was so happy and emotional when we got the rights to it was a song called Cycle which is in the closing credits and the lyrics are so important and they tell a part of the story itself like it's almost I think of the lyrics of that song as if I was writing an essay, that those lyrics are the conclusion of the essay, wrapping up exactly what you've just seen and telling you that this 
you know, where we've grown up, it's a cycle, like that's just the way things are. And that's by an artist called Wretch Free Too, who's one of my favorite British um, rappers. And again, desperately wanted the song, didn't know what we would have done if they had said no. And I, I'm, I managed to get in touch with his manager and we sent him the film and yeah, we're like, God, we just hope they're going to let us use it. Hope that they're not going to charge us a crazy amount. And I remember the day when Abby phoned me and she was like, have you ever spoken to Zion before? I was like, no, why? And then she was like, so he watched the early cut of the film. He absolutely loved it. And the long story short is that not only did they give us permission to use the song, but again, we didn't have to pay anything. Like they were just so in love with the film. And it was, and you know, I remember us being daunted uh, because it was the very first cut. So, it, you know, for anyone who's ever seen the first cut, it's not a perfect form in any shape or form. So for him to see that and just be so blown away and give us that support meant the world to me. So, yeah, I was so glad that in so many instances of this film, we got our first choices, whether it was the songs, whether it was my actors, whether it was Olan. And, you know, Abby never had a choice but to work with me anyway. But more importantly, especially with the cast and direct, um, DOP, and Abby is that they were all available as well as wanting to be a part of it. And yeah, it was great to get all those songs as well and, and really colour the world of the film with authentic music. We also worked with a really amazing composer, Adrian Lung. Yeah, he was just brilliant, to be honest, and came to our rescue when we realised that we needed something to fill that space. <laughs> um, sure. Not only did he come to our rescue, he came to our rescue the day before we needed to submit the film like uh that was one of the most stressful days of my life like i remember just being in my room listening to score after score after score of different composers and watching listening to it whilst watching the film and i remember just calling every other abs i don't know what to choose and she's like well you're gonna have to choose something because there's not another suggestion and abby actually hundreds yeah but you were the one who identified it you were like hey i think there's something in this like just watch it a couple more times watch the film with the music on in the background and watch that moment and honestly like i've seen the film a hundred times now and it's absolutely perfect but i remember in that moment being worried like my yeah it was more like the deadline's here now but i guess Sometimes that's the magic of film that you're not absolutely certain of the decision you're making when you're making it. And you just have to trust your gut, trust the team around you that the decision is right. Because now when I watch the film, it sounds so perfect. And I couldn't imagine any other score in that moment that just made it so dreamy. And, and just to clarify, that was a score he had that already existed. So it wasn't even like it was something specifically made for the film. And so for it to work so perfectly was a dream. Well, I think we'll all agree that the, the film is a, a dream. And I'd like to thank the panel, Abiola, Abraham, Paris, Irana and Olan. And not to forget all of you for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. And uh, please share uh, you know, as much news about the film as possible. We appreciate your time. And if you need anything, please, please come to us. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.